Hi, this is Steve from the Retroman blog, and welcome to this very special episode of Retro Sonic Podcast. In this edition, we're pleased to be joined by Harley Feinstein, the original drummer with Sparks. Now, Harley drummed on the very first two albums, uh, Half Nelson, or the Sparks album, and A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing. And he was over in the UK for a one-off gig with uh, Crash 74. You can check out more information on the gig at the 12 Bar Club with Crash 74 on www.retromanblog.com where there's some great Paul Slattery photographs and a review of the concert as well. So here he is. Here's Harley in his own words. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Steve. This is Harley. Okay, so here we are. Again, we're in 1970. I'm 18 years old. I had passed the Sparks audition. Sparks at that time consisting of Russell Mayo on vocals and bass guitar, uh, Ron on keyboards, and Earl Mankey on lead guitar. So then I hadn't heard anything from them for a while after I had uh, been proclaimed to be the drummer of the band and uh, then I got a call from Russell again saying that you know inviting me to come down to the studio to watch them finish the album that they're working on so I go down to the studio and I had never been in a recording studio before back in 1970 recording studios were pretty rare Uh, there were several in LA this is one of the few and uh, so I went in there, and it was like uh, going into the Starship Enterprise. I was just my my eyes were popping out of my head. The place was so uh, modern, high tech, futuristic, with all the lights blinking and reels spinning. And I'm sure everybody involved felt the same way. Uh, I doubt that any of us had ever been in a recording studio like that. They had already been working on this album for I don't know how long, a month, maybe a few weeks. And they were just they were doing some some vocal work on it, I think, nearing the end of the of the recording process. So at this in the recording studio in the control room, Russ, Ron and Russ and Earl, of course, were there. And then in addition, there was Earl's younger brother, Jimmy. Jimmy Mankey was there. Jim was also there, just to observe, like me just to hang out and see what it's like to make an album. Also present was um, Mike Burns, the fellow who had uh, financed the album. So now Mike Burns was introduced to me as the uh, executive producer, but more importantly, or equally importantly, is he was the manager of the band at the time. And thirdly, the occasional drummer, since he did play drums on at least one song on that record. So Michael Burns looked like Charles Manson, which at the time I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, he had a beard and long hair, and uh, he looked like a wild hippie, which that look was still a very cool look in 1970. So um, anyway, he introduces himself to me, and of course, since he's Sparks, uh, Half Nelson's manager, he's a manager, he's very energetic and kind of aggressive, and he tells me that he um, wants to be the uh, the band's drummer. And I felt, you know, he was really kind of uh, trying to intimidate me into not being the drummer so that he could be the drummer. You know, who knows? Maybe that's why he agreed to pay to have the album produced. But then Ron Russ at a later time told me, and Earl told me, that no, there's no way Mike was going to be the drummer for several reasons. One is that even though I thought that uh, Charles Manson hippie look was pretty cool, they found it to completely to be completely unacceptable. They um, 
or heavily influenced of by the mods by British culture, the mods and the rockers. Not not so much the rockers, more the, the mods, and those guys did not look like hippies. So there's no way that a hippie was going to be in the band. Also, um, probably they told me they didn't like the way he played because he played more on the uh, downbeat rather than the upbeat. You know, in, in rock, rock, you're supposed to have a heavy, uh, you're supposed to have a backbeat when you play rock and roll music. And um, Mike played on the downbeat, the one and the three beat rather than the two and the four beat. Sounds pretty simple, but they told me that he kind of led with the snare drum, which bothered them a lot. And I, I could see that. He kind of does that on uh, Jason's Bar and Grill. But I think they also probably did not want to have the manager be in the band because he would he would create too much um, he would have too much influence over the direction that the band was taking. It was enough that he was the manager and giving his ideas and exerting his influence. But if he's actually in the band, having creative impact during the band practices, that will, I suspect that had a lot had a lot to do with it. So um, anyway, uh, I was it. I was the drummer. So I'm watching them record this album. And I remember they were what they were doing is they were working on the song Johnny's Adventure, which again you may not have, you may never have heard this album, but those that have heard it uh, will know the song Johnny's Adventure. It has a very distinctive guitar solo in it by Earl, and it has a part where uh, Russell is singing Bill Dre A A A Bill Dre A A A Bill Dre A A A A A A Bill Drake was the most important program director in America at the time. If Bill Drake liked your song, it would get played on the radio. And that was the kind of thing that only people that were pretty astute in the, big, in the music business knew. Ron Ross and Earl knew that. So for a joke, they put um, his name in the song. Although they kind of had cold feet and thought that maybe that might make Bill Drake angry with them, so Russell, who did this a lot back in those days, would intentionally sing in an incomprehensible manner. So if you listen to that, you can't actually understand him saying Bill Dre AAA. Russell did the same thing with the line in Wonder Girl, self-made men have daughters who just won't ball. Well, that was how we sang it. That's how he sang it in uh, band practices. But when it came down to recording, he got cold feet and changed it to daughters who just won't And he kind of mumbles the word, and you can't really hear what it is. Although when you read the lyric sheet, you can see that he is singing daughters who just won't ball. <gasps> how earth-shaking was that? <laughs> She was a wonder to her dad So um, the recording session was very, very, very interesting, and I went home and I didn't hear from them again for, I don't know, two months maybe, and I thought, well, I guess they've changed their minds about this thing. So, nope, it's Russell again calling me saying, okay, we've finished the album and we're ready to do publicity photographs. 
So we want you down here um, to participate in the photo shoots. So I'm thinking, wow, well, okay, great. I've never been the subject of a photo shoot before. <laughs> uh, I thought that was pretty uh, amazingly cool. So the photo shoot was being held at the college. UCLA was the, was the college, was the university where we were uh, where we were conducting this photo where the photographs were being taken. Bringing up UCLA uh, is going to cause me to digress a moment. If I didn't really care for the music that much, which I didn't really, other than that one song, Factory, uh, why was I so hot to join this band? Well, why did I want to join the band so much? Well, I really liked the guys. Uh, the fact that they were um, making an album was impressive. But equally impressive is that they were all about to graduate from UCLA. And my dream was to get into UCLA and graduate from UCLA. I was trying to get into to that school. So that was, that was part of the appeal. Ultimately, I did and graduated from UCLA. But that was part of the appeal, actually, of Half Nelson. So we did the shoot, photo shoot. So what do they need me for, right? The album's already done. Well, I was told was that my role was to be part of the live act to promote the record. You have to have a band. You have to be able to play live in order to promote the record. They thought that promoting, they thought that the record was going to be make them a lot of money. Uh, since they owned the masters, they wouldn't have to uh, be receiving royalties from a record company. Plus, since uh, Ryan Rust were the writers for the most part, they'd be getting all the writers' royalties. So they figured that they'd get out and play live and sell a bunch of records. And, and that was actually a fairly um, uh, advanced business model. So uh, we spent the... In oh, we spent hours and hours taking photographs. I don't know, we probably got out there about 2 a.m. And we were exhausted. Um, but there were some pretty good photographs got uh, produced from that session. So between those, so those photographs were used along with some other materials to create a promotional package for the first album. All right, so then we embark on getting a record company to sign us to distribute this this album. And so what we did was we rented a, a room in a factory and started uh, rehearsing our live back. We did that. We spent several months honing that. We sounded pretty good. And around that time, around the time that we finished... Um, the photo shoot and got the package together and started working up a live and we've started working up a live act and right around that time Russell decided that he didn't want to play the bass anymore but he wanted to be a singer who held a microphone and danced and sung and was would not be encumbered by a bass in the way that Mick Jagger and um, Roger Daltrey did it. The Who being probably Ron and Russ's favorite band at the time. So, uh, we then tried to find a bass player. And that was not easy. We went through a lot of different guys. That's when we gave up on looking for a bass player, and Earl said, okay, well, let's just use my, my little brother, Jimmy. The reason why Earl hesitated to bring Jim Mankey into the band in the very first place was because Jim was a lead guitar player not a bass player. So Jim said, okay, I will put down my guitar and I will play bass for you guys gladly. And um, Earl said, okay, we're going to get my little bro my baby brother Jim in the band. Um, one problem, though, he told us is that Jim is a better guitar player than I am, So, um, but I'm going to play guitar because I'm bigger, I'm older, and I'm going to be the guy that plays guitar and hope none of you have a problem with that. And we said, no, no problem. So Jim joined the band. So we worked up the live act and um, also worked on new songs. And our manager brought in representatives from record companies. We did this about once a week. And the uh, record company executives would listen to us play in our little factory room, which Russell named the Doggy Factory. Why was it called the Doggy Factory? Because it made dog beds 
So we should have called it the Dog Bed Factory, but somehow or another, Russell, uh, in an effort to be cutesy, called it the Doggy Factory. So that's what it was called, the Doggy Factory. We practiced in the Doggy Factory quite diligently. I was still living with my parents. It also kind of became my home away from home. We furnished it with couches and tables, and so I used to bring my dates there and um, have fun there. So, uh, one by one, we went through every record company in Los Angeles and over the next few months, and none of them would sign us to a record contract. So, we were starting to feel um, desperate. Like, I guess this whole music thing hasn't really worked out. We weren't even close to giving up, but we were getting discouraged. Our manager kept bringing people by, and nobody wanted to sign us. So... We're playing in the Doggy Factory, little mini concerts for record executives. We're doing this for months and months and months. Uh, we were kind of having fun doing it. We would set up little cash registers, little toy cash registers, and have boxes of candy that we would pretend to be selling. We tried decorating a place with streamers. At one point, we had a long scroll with the name of every record company executive that had ever come to see us and rejected us. Uh, we started to joke around that we were the band that nobody wanted, um, and that was our, our claim to fame, that we had been rejected by more record companies than any other band. So then, at some point, the, this box that we had been sending around, this box containing the, uh, the pictures and the record and some other clippings and things, found its way to Todd Rundgren. Probably Michael Burns, who was a pretty diligent guy, as far as I could tell, somehow got the box of promotional materials and record to Todd Rundgren. Todd had a girlfriend at the time named Miss Christine, who was a member of the GTOs, GTO standing for Girls Together Outrageously, which was uh, started out as a groupies that were somehow connected to Frank Zappa. And they, Frank Zappa liked them. He even produced a record by them. So anyway, uh, Miss Christine was the ringleader of this bunch of girls, and she claimed, she told me, I don't know if this is true or not, but she claims that she had a hand in convincing Todd how great we were. And in particular, she liked the song Roger. Roger does appear on the first actual released Hef Nelson al album, but the original version of Roger appeared on, on that first album that never got released, which I keep calling the demo album. And the version of that is actually better than the version that appears on the Half Nelson album. said, well, Todd, if you, uh, if you like this band, uh, maybe we should go ahead and sign them to our record company. That record company that was owned by Albert Grossman was called Bearsville Records. Albert Grossman was a big cheese. Um, he, the reason why he was such a big cheese is because he was Bob Dylan's manager, and he worked closely with the band as well. So uh, he had really very, very little to do with, with our sound. I mean, what on earth does Bob Dylan have to do with Half Nelson or Sparks? Nothing. Uh, Bob Dylan was a folk artist. Um, we were 
I don't know, kind of, well, sort of pop. We wanted to be pop, <laughs> although we maybe were more weird than pop could ever be. Albert trusted Todd. Todd went and saw us, really flipped over the group, said, I want to sign this group, I want to produce them. Albert says, let's go for it. So they signed us and willing to make some sort of financial commitment at least. However, they did not, they, meaning Todd and Albert, did not want the album that Ron and Russ and Earl had already recorded. They did not think it was commercially viable. They thought that, you know, that the band had potential. They didn't like that first album, so they said that we want you to record a new album. Well, no problem. <laughs> For me, that was the best news possible because now I got to be... Um, on the first album. Instead of just being part of the live band promoting the first album, I'm on the first album. So that was great news for me and for Jim as well. And Ron and Russ also, in a row, of course, would, you know, wanted nothing more than great. Get to now record an album with a, with a real producer. Now, Todd Rundgren was not famous at that time. He was a producer. Uh, he, had, he had had the band Runt already, but was certainly not a household name, was not a star yet. Uh, he had somewhat of a reputation. People knew who he was, and uh, maybe a cult following, but he was not famous. So uh, we go into the studio, and we're actually getting paid. We joined the Musicians Union. We're getting paid scale to, <laughs> to record this album which was pretty amazing for us. Uh, we get a uh, cash advance from the record company when they sign us, and we're recording. So before we record, we work out all the songs, and nowadays when a songwriter introduces a song to a band, the way it's typically done, I believe, most bands, is that the songwriter at home makes his own recording of how he thinks the song should sound, using fake drums and maybe a real guitar, uh, but maybe not. Uh, it's all done on the computer, and then the sound file is brought to the, to the uh, band practice, and it's played for the band, or maybe just emailed to the band, and they then work out a live version. And that method, I believe, freeze, tends to freeze the song the way the songwriter initially conceives of it. Well, back in those days, people didn't have the technical ability to go home and make a recording of a song that sounded anything like a, a final version of a song. Obviously, that couldn't happen in 1970 or 71. So instead, the way the song was presented to us is Ron... Usually, either Ron or Russ, they were equal songwriters at the time, and once in a while, Earl would come in with a guitar and strum the song to us. And we would then, the song would then be uh, formulated. We would each formulate our parts, and who knows how the song would come out, but it would come out completely different. But the personality and musical abilities of each of us uh, would then be contributed to the song for better or for worse. One thing I can tell you is that the uh later the third album when that when Ron and Russ were more dictatorial about how the uh songs would be developed uh sounds more focused to me. I don't know, I could be wrong about that, but this is a thought I've had for I've, I've often thought that. So recording that first album was a treat. The first song we started doing was uh, High Sea.
and these songs had been, like I said, pretty much worked out by the five of us in the doggy factory. But now we had Todd Rundgren in the mix, and we were now in the studio, which changed the way we played. And the songs changed form while we were there. The songs improved. We had basic versions of them worked out at the doggy factory, but now we were perfecting them, honing them, making them better. James Lowe was the engineer for the first album. And uh, we knew that James Lowe had been in another band, but he refused to tell us what that band was. Although we had, we knew that that band that James Lowe had been in previously was had some success, had some hits. But he, he said, "I ain't gonna tell you near that band. You guys are gonna laugh. I'm not going to tell you who." It. He wouldn't tell us. It took us a long time before we finally found out the name of the band that James Lowe had been in before was the Electric Prunes. And I guess the Electric Prunes at the time in 1970 probably didn't have a good reputation. Maybe, uh, maybe that's why he refused to tell us. He was, uh, he thought he was a little embarrassed. I don't know why. We had to, I think, finally guess it, and he said, "Okay, I, I'm fessing up. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to admit it was the Electric Prunes." So anyway, we got along great with James and Todd. We were all. I thought Todd was a great guy. I thought James was a great guy. We all got along swimmingly. Album got finished up, and mixed, released, and you know, I'm sure you know the story, that it didn't sell well, so then uh, Albert Grossman comes to Los Angeles and says, okay, we're going we're gonna to have a meeting, so we met Albert in, the, in his room at the Hotel Marmont, Chateau Marmont, the Chateau Marmont on Sunset in West Hollywood the famous place where all the rock stars stay and John Belushi died. And so there's Albert in his room and I'm thinking, yeah, this place is kind of a dump. So Albert says, look boys, um, I want to make you stars. What we need to do is we need to find the angle. We need to be able to market you properly. And he said, look, the music business is kind of like a pole, like a telephone pole. You can walk up to that telephone pole drive a nail into like a poster you put a poster up on that wall and uh, 10 people 100 a thousand people can tack something onto that post till it's completely covered but it may look completely covered but if you look hard enough you'll always find some little open spot in that post there's always going to be an opening and the music business is like that guys right now here we are sitting here in my room at the hotel it's uh 1971, everything that can be done musically has already been done by 1971. It's all been done. No one's going to think of anything new at this point. But I think there, there's an open space somewhere on that pole. And my goal is I'm going to find a little open space, and that's where I'm going to fit half Nelson. Because I think you guys are different. You're the one thing that is different out there. So we're going, okay, whatever. <laughs> sounds, sounds funny with us. Uh, he said, however, I think uh, you need to change the name. You guys need to think of a name because uh, you know, we've already tried putting our album out under the name Half Nelson and it didn't fly. It didn't work. So you guys need to come up with a new band name. I mean, I could give you a new name or you can think of it yourselves, but you need, you need a new name. So, okay, no, no, we'll think of a name. So we go back home, we go to the doggy factory, we, we talk, we talk, we talk. But we talked about it, and some of the names we came up with, uh, they were all, you know, we tried to think of funny things. Uh, Earl, remember, tried to think of some cutie names. One of them was the Pooties, P-O-O-D-I-E-S, the Pooties. He liked that name. We liked comedy, we especially uh, old comedies. W.C. Fields, 
There was a movie called International House, hilarious movie made before the Hayes Code, so it had lots of racy jokes and racy scenes. And in one scene, um, W.C. Fields utters the line, Ah, Chinese people. So for a while there, we were going to be the Chinese people. What a, what, a, what a name that would have been. Can you imagine if instead of we had been Sparks, we had been called the Chinese people? Almost happened. But no, it didn't. Somebody didn't like it. So we could not agree on a name. Um, so then one day, we got a call from our manager. And by that time, uh, Mike, Mike Burns had already been... Um, given the axe, he was gone, and we when we got signed to the new record contract by Bearsville, um, we were told by the Bearsville owner that uh, that we needed a, a more powerful manager, better manager. So we were given Roy Silver. Roy Silver had had some more experience. He had previously managed Tiny Tim, so he had had some success, and also an, uh, Bill Cosby, the actor Bill Cosby. He was also Bill Cosby's manager. At the time, he was managing the band Fanny, who had quite a bit of success in England, probably more in England than in in the States. So anyway, so we get a call from Roy, who was a a classic cigar-chomping, suit-wearing manager with a huge, impressive office. He was really into intimidation, and he intimidated us. And he says, boys, I want you to come down to the office right now. We said, he said, jump. We said, how high? And we got in the car, and we drove uh, out from West Los Angeles out to his offices in Beverly Hills, go into his big, enormous, impressive office, and sit down. And he goes, okay, boys, you're all sitting. You're all ready for the your new name. This name is the best name that any band has ever had in the history of music. Are you ready? Yeah. What is it, Roy? It's the Sparks Brothers. So there's a long pause, and of course we're all thinking, the Sparks Brothers? That sounds like a country band. We don't want to be anything. We don't want to be the brothers of anything. And So Roy's going, you know, there's brothers in this band. Ron Russell Brothers, Earl and Jimmer Brothers. So there's brothers. There's two sets of brothers. And you like the, um, the Marx Brothers. You can't be the Marx Brothers. You like comedy. You like W.C. Fields. You like Groucho Marx. So how about Sparks? Sparks Brothers. So we said, we'll think about it. So we all go home, you know, talk about, God, we can't not be the Sparks Brothers. So all we could come up with was dropping the brothers and becoming Sparks. And that's how we got the name Sparks. So... They re-released the album, redo the artwork. Larry DuPont, again, does the artwork. Larry DuPont had a very important role with Sparks back in the early days. He made all of the home recordings using his equipment. He was kind of like the engineer. Did all the photography. Quite a bit of the album artwork was always there, helping us set up the PA, um, took care of our sound. He did a very, very important role in the band. And I'm still friends with Larry. I took him to see Sparks, actually, a couple a few months ago when they played L.A., Two of us went and chatted with Ron and Russ. It was great. Anyway, so uh, um, the album is then re-released under the name Sparks, and um, you know, not doing much better really. Uh, it's doing some. It's in certain markets, it's doing okay, but not a not a real hit, so that the record company was making any money. Roy um, knew we really wanted to go to England. He wanted to keep us happy, and we really wanted to go to England. And so, and we thought that the best way to make it in the United States was to go to England first, 
and then play over there and then come back to the United States as a band from England because that right away gives you many bonus points if you're coming from England. So that was the plan, is we'd go to England and have some success there and then come back to the United States and truly make it. So how do we make that happen? Well, Roy's approach, our manager's approach, was to simply go to the record company. Uh, like I told you, we were signed to Bearsville Records, but by that time, Bearsville had, was purchased by Warner Brothers, so that Bearsville was actually a wholly owned subsidiary. So our manager knew everybody that worked at Warner Brothers. It was run by a powerful guy named Mo Austin. So our manager would go, Roy would go over to the record company and talk to the secretaries and the office managers and the A&R guys and everybody over there and say, hey, did you hear? Sparks is going on tour to England. And they'd go, no, I did not know that. And they'd go, yeah, you better, you know, you better uh, get with it. You, know, you better start arranging the, the visas. You better start working on getting the airline tickets and you know, where are they going to stay and hop to it. You know, what's going on? So by that method, by him just physically going to the offices and just acting like, if it, was, like it was going to happen, lo and behold, next thing we knew, it happened. He gives us a call and says, i got some great news for you, boys. Come on over to the office. Sit down. I'm going to tell you, you're going to England. So how wonderful was that? That was so great. I, was already, I, had, I had already gotten partway to my goal of getting through UCLA. I'd gotten into UCLA, UCLA at least. So I was going to, to that university. But I gladly uh, dropped out. We went to the best music stores in town and got the best musical instruments that we could find and shipped them over to England and we were picked up in limos at the airport and put up in pretty, you know, a pretty decent hotel in Chelsea and started doing our England thing. we get to England, it's 1972, and uh, a tour had not been arranged. Certain gigs had been arranged, but not a real back-to-back -back tour, which was, at the time, I was a little disappointed, <laughs> but it was fine. Uh, it was a lot easier on us. We only had, we played once a week at the Pheasantry in Chelsea, which is a great little place, and a huge picture of our band on the wall. I had a tab at the pheasantry. Uh, I made friends with the bartender. I was the only guy that really liked to go out and uh, enjoy myself at night. Everyone else stayed in their room. So I went out. Sometimes I would get Earl to join me. Never Jimmy. Never Ron and Russ. They never, none, of the, none of those guys ever liked to go out at night and have, enjoy themselves. Don't know why. My so-called touring with Sparks in the UK, France, Switzerland, in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1972, it was very different. We didn't really tour. What we did is we were based in London, and we would get some gigs. We would get, we had a regular gig at the Pheasantry. That was that club on King's Road. <coughs> we had a residency there, so we we could play there all we wanted. We played every week unless we were doing another gig somewhere else. We would get occasional gigs. We would we get one up up north. I remember. Harrogate. I remember we had one in Harrogate, so we would get in the van, drive up to wherever it was, Harrogate for that one, 
play and drive back down to London that night after the gig. Uh, East Anglican University, we had one there. Uh, I remember we opened for um, the brand new Electric Light Orchestra there. Oh, I remember we had one, a gig in um, Born. Bournemouth, so we drove down to Bournemouth for the night and opened for the Kinks. A lot, a lot like that. It wasn't really touring. It would be we would be staying, living in our hotels, and then we would play locally at the Pheasantry in Chelsea, and then now and again uh, get these these gigs throughout England. And then once in a while we'd get one or something would happen. Oh yeah, in Holland we did get a couple in Holland. We flew over to Holland and played played somewhere there and also did a TV show there. That's, if you go onto YouTube you can see there'll be some um, there's some video. It's the oldest video of Sparks or, and I'm on it and uh, we're doing I think um, Wonder Girl and Do Re Mi. Uh, that old video which a lot of people have seen that was filmed in Holland back in 72. So I didn't really tour, but there were some periods of time where gigs got bunched up, and I found it very, very exhausting. Most of the time I was on my own, but I made friends. And uh, I'd go to the pheasantry at night, and they had made a huge blow-up picture of our band on the wall, so that when you would walk into the pheasantry club, the first thing you would see is this billboard of us, me, my face, uh, greeting, you know, everybody's face, but, you know, each one of us is huge. So that gave me some credibility in that club when it came to, um, how shall I say, uh, negotiating uh, liaisons with the young ladies, young British ladies. Oh, yeah, and then I had a tab at the bar. I made made friends with the bartender who um, liked me for some reason. And it was a restaurant, too, so I could uh, order champagne for my friends and steak au poivre and giant prawns and then go out to the dance floor and order drinks for everyone, and it was all being billed at the record company. (laughs) So it was a pretty good life over there. That lasted about four months. Um, Then we played old Grey Whistle Test, and things started to pick up for us, and then we uh, got into the Marquee Club, and people were interested and they wanted to see us because we had just been on the telly. That was it was great. We were having uh, we were having fun anyway. You know, we weren't making any money for the record company or for us or for anybody, but we were being subsidized and uh, we were making progress professionally. Uh, we filled the Marquee Club the night we played there after the old Grey Whistle Test appearance. We would have filled it a second time the next night, except something happened. And that is that uh, Russell met a young woman at one of our gigs. Remember, she was a rather hefty, healthy-looking blonde whose father owned a nightclub called The Post in Zermatt, Switzerland. And she said, I really like your band. She was Swiss. And I would like you to play at my father's nightclub called The Post in Zermatt, Switzerland. So Ron and Russ are going, oh my God, Zermatt, I always wanted to go to Zermatt, it's at the foot of the Matterhorn. So we cancel out of the uh, Marquee Club gig that I believe was sold out in advance, and we go to Zermatt because it seemed like it'd be more fun. Now, you might think that our manager or the record company would be smart enough to veto that idea and say, no boys. We want you to go to. We want you to attend to your responsibilities, and that is play your sold-out gig at the Marquee Club instead of going to Zermatt. But the manager also wanted to go to Zermatt. The manager was. We had an English manager, uh, John Hewlett. By that time, all the guy, all the all the men that worked for the record company, these guys, they all wanted to go to Zermatt. So there was no resistance, and, and no one was really, uh, I don't know, it's, the, whole point, the whole operation was asleep at the switch, and we go to Zermatt. 
which at the time to me seemed like a brilliant idea. I wanted to go to Zermatt too. I was uh, a beginning skier. <laughs> so I thought, this is great, I can go skiing at one of the best ski places in the world. And, and so we get to Zermatt and we're booked in these hot- nice quaint little hotels. Uh, each of us had our own hotel room. I think I shared... Uh, we were put in different hotels. We had our own rooms. We were in different hotels, and I was in one hotel with J- with Jim Mankey. And anyway, so we go down into town to the town of Zermatt, which was horse-drawn sleighs only, and no cars allowed. And we it's winter, it's snowing, and we go into the club. We plug in, we crank up, and the owner comes running out, saying, "No, no, 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 no! You cannot play." that kind of music at that volume in my club and he wouldn't let us play so um, I skied the whole time I was fine with that but I think that incident um, put the nail in the Sparks coffin that era of Sparks I believe because we got back to London and then it became revealed to the accountants or whoever it is that was in charge of the money over there in England um, what was go- was you know what was going on. First of all, we made this probable career blunder by go- by flaking out on the Marquee Club gig and instead going skiing or going to a ski resort. Um, plus, they have been spending a tremendous amount of money on us on hotels and meals and parties and God knows what. And they were not getting, they, when I say they, I mean the English record company, which was WEA. WEA expected to be reimbursed from the American record company, Warner Brothers. And four months went by and they hadn't got any money. So WEA said, that's it, we're sending this band back to uh, America. And they did. They put us on a plane and we went back to America. We stopped in New York and recorded I Like Girls which I thought came out really good. It came out it came out again. It was re-recorded, uh, as you know, I think it was on Big Beat with horns. It sounds good, too. Me, personally, I like the original version better. I didn't talk about the fact that we recorded the second album of Woofer and Tweeter's Clothing with uh, James Lowe before we went on that trip to England. But I'm not even I'm not going to go there. It, it, the, James Lowe took over production duties on that and did a great job. Just as good as Todd Rundgren, and I thought. Um, good man, James Lowe. Very talented. Uh, was really happy to work with him later on with the Electric Prunes on their last release before uh, Mark Tulin, the bass player, died. Okay, so we got two albums. Neither one of them sold much. We had achieved a fair amount of success in England, I believe, by that time. But the record companies pulled the plug on us, sent us back to L.A., and now we're in the doldrums. What do we do? Well, the best we can come up with at that point is we start playing the Whiskey A Go-Go. Whiskey was a good club. It was probably the best club in L.A. at the time, so that wasn't all that bad getting to play at the Whiskey on a regular basis. Uh, we we played there pretty much once a week, which was, you know, it was a pretty good gig, but it wasn't the same level of success as we felt that we were achieving in London. We, uh, we, were, we were kind of down about the whole thing. And I started getting interested in other things, um, principally skiing at that time. That, I became a real ski nut. So I was always off skiing. And we weren't really practicing because we didn't really have anything to practice for. We would do the gigs, but we didn't really need to practice for them. So a lot of the momentum had fizzled at that point. Then I get a call from Russ one day. And he said, how about let's go back to England? And I said, I don't know. I'm kind of happy here. I'm back here with my girlfriend, and I'm going skiing all the time, and kind of cold in London, and they don't have good Mexican food or hamburgers there. And and he goes, oh, no, Harley, come on. Let's all go back to England. Remember how great things were there? 
anyway, he starts spinning these fantasies about England, drawing me back into what it was like and what it could be like again if we would just go back to England. So I thought about it for a few days and call him back, and I go, okay, let's do it. Let's go back to England. I don't know how I thought it was going to be paid for. I didn't have any money. Um, but Russell appeared to have something in mind, something up his sleeve. Well, I think what was going on was he was all he and Ron were in communication with Island Records, and Island Records wanted Sparks to come to England. What I didn't know is that Island Records, I didn't know anything about Island Records at the time, and I'm only speculating this, but it's probably true. How else would Russell and Ron have contemplated going back to England without having a record company or somebody pay for it? So it had to have been that. They had to have been talking to Island Records at the time. And what I didn't know was that Island Records was only willing to subsidize Ron and Russ. They only wanted a, they only wanted Ron and Russ. They didn't want a whole band. And I can understand their point of view. Uh, the Island Records probably figured they could, they could always get another guitar player, another drummer, but the heart of the band was Ron and Russ, and they wanted Ron and Russ. You asked me if I thought they were ruthless. I don't believe so. I don't believe Ron and Russ are ruthless people at all. I think they're they're good people. They're fine people. They're honorable. And I believe that they wanted us, I think they badly wanted the five of us to go back to England. They didn't want to go back. By the, what advantage would there, was there, from their point of view at that time, to go back alone without their band? I don't think they wanted to. And I have, the, in, as a piece of evidence to support that, um, a few years ago, I was over at James Lowe's house, and he pulls out a postcard that he had gotten from Ron and Russ after they returned to England. And the postcard said that they tried really hard to get the band over there, but Island wouldn't go for it, and they felt bad about it, but that was all they, they had no choice in the matter. I saw that postcard, and I, and I really believe that was true. I don't, I don't think that they were being ruthless or that they somehow it was a control grab, a power grab. They had no choice. The only way they were going to get to go back to England, the only way they were going to get to pursue their career further would be to acquiesce to what the record company, what Island Records was asking them to do, and that is to split up the band and just the two of them go back to England. So that's what happened. And the way I found out about it is uh, an acquaintance of mine told me that he saw them having a garage sale and asked them why they were having a garage sale, and they said they were going to England. My friend told me, hey, I just saw your buddies, Ron and Russ, they're having a garage sale, they're going to England. And I go, what? That was how I found out about it. Anyway, you know, the rest is history. You know the story. They went to England and, and became uh, huge successes. And the way I found out about that was I received an envelope from Russell with a bunch of melody makers and New Musical Express clippings um, showing Sparks Mania. You know, back then, it was pretty hard to get information. We didn't know what was going on over in England. It took months for the information to filter over. There was no Internet. The radio didn't have any clue what was going on in England. TV, nothing. You, it was all word of mouth, or in this case, uh, an envelope arrived from Russell with the press clippings. That's how I found out how they had made it in England. fact that I pretty much lost interest in music after I got out of Sparks. Well, that's very true. So you've got music, the act of making music, and you've got the music business. And of course, they're, they're very, very different. And I liked music. I like music. I still like music. And I like musicians. But I don't like particularly the music business. And I don't particularly like music businessmen or business people. Uh, and I formed that view probably uh, when I was in Sparks. Since, uh, rightly or wrongly, I viewed people in the music business, the managers, the agents, the record company executives, 
as uh, parasites who latched on to the musicians for their benefit and really didn't contribute anything creative to the process and if there was a way to avoid having these businessmen involved that would be better and to a large extent uh, well, to some extent that's true today nowadays musicians can make music and can distribute the music and publish the music without any businessmen being involved at all which is great so when um, when Sparks split up um, and I then went on to become a lawyer I could have pursued the music business I could have represented musicians on a regular basis and I do there are a few musicians that I represent and I, I work with mostly it's well it's bands that I it's people and bands that I like uh, and I don't do it really for the money uh, because there isn't a lot of money involved me in the music business um, I do it because I want to help the people and the reason why I don't really like music business per se is because my, as a lawyer what I like to do is I like to help people I have a, a humanitarian viewpoint when it comes to the practice of law it sounds corny but that's true I, I, my, my biggest pleasure uh, in being a lawyer is to get hugs and praise and maybe even tears of joy from my client I get a lot more satisfaction, a lot more fulfillment from that than I do from getting a check or, or from a businessman to look back across the desk at me and go, yeah, we sure gave it to the other side, didn't we? We sure nailed their asses to the wall, didn't we, Feinstein? We beat them. That doesn't appeal to me. To be praised by a fat cat businessman because I helped him get a little fatter um, is not my thing. Anyway, so enough on that. That's why that's why I chose a more of a humanitarian uh, approach to law as opposed to being in the music business. As far as doing music, being in music as opposed to the music business, why did I not pursue that after Sparks? Well, actually, in the last ten or fifteen years, I have been. I've been playing in bands pretty regularly, but there was that long gap between 1973 and um, about 20 years until probably the mid-90s when I really hadn't been involved in music at all. I wasn't in any bands during that 20-year period. And the reason for that is because when I left Sparks, I actually did try to meet some other musicians and see if I could get something going with them, but um, I couldn't really meet anybody that was even close to the um, the level of creativity and the distinctiveness the the the, the uniqueness that those guys had uh, frankly I, I couldn't uh, I just couldn't didn't want to be in another band <laughs> any other band that I would have been in would have been a joke I felt uh, a real come down so rather than uh, rather than uh, get into what I thought would be a kind of a crummy band I passed on it and just said forget it I'm going to do other things that's that's what happened but that changed for me in the mid 90's at that point I got reinterested in music and I've been playing in bands ever since and enjoying it and I really had a wonderful time at the 12 bar club the thing was the England thing was great and, uh, and I think we're probably going to do more of this kind of stuff combining a gig with a trip to a really nice place after the gig. That's what I foresee in the future. So I think I've wasted your time, bored you to tears with this never-ending saga about what? About my minor role in a cult band of Sparks. But anyway, for me it was a big deal. And um, anyway, okay, that is it. I promise no more. Bye.